If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. But in the end, blaming is, is a distraction from what we really need to do, which is understand why it is that, that an entire continent committed suicide in 1914. That was Chris Clark on the origins of the First World War. I think one thing we can be certain of is that these were very noisy places. The street cries seemed to be a commonplace part of the urban experience in Rome. And that was Claire Holleran on Roman shopping. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This is the final episode of 2012, and if you can hear me now, then it's safe to say that the fears about the end of the world taking place last week turned out to be unfounded. I hope you've all had good Christmases and are ready for what promises to be a fascinating episode. Our first guest is Professor Chris Clark, a historian based at the University of Cambridge. His most recent book is The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914. He wrote a feature for us earlier this year, and I spoke to him not long afterwards about the still-contested origins of the conflict that would shatter a generation. First of all, do you believe that we've come to misunderstand the origins of the First World War? I'm not sure that we'll ever fully understand the origins of the First World War. I, th I think the key thing to recall in this connection is that the, the crisis that brought this war about 
is the most complex crisis of modern times, probably the most complex crisis of all times. It involved, you know, six great powers interacting in real time at, at an increasing speed, a number of lesser players, the Balkan states, the Ottoman Empire, uh, and so on. And um, all of these players operate, operating more or less autonomously, uh, without reference to each other, but reacting to each other um, in an increasingly sort of threatening and urgent atmosphere of crisis. And the result is a, a, an almost fractal level of complexity, which means that understanding the origins of the First World War is, is probably not something one human being will ever fully be able to do. Um, the, the novelist Rebecca West commented when she went to Sarajevo in 1937, she said, the problem is not that we, we, we know too, too little, the problem is that we know too much. And we know too much really to make sense of it all. Um, but I think we've, we have nonetheless I think got things slightly wrong. I, th I think the, the, the most important way in which we've got things wrong is that we've thought about the origins of the First World War in terms of a, a sort of James Bond style narrative. Um, there must be a bad guy state, there must be a villain who brought this horrible catastrophe about. Um, and by and large, the finger has been pointed at Germany as the as the initiator of the war, as the as the one as the as the most aggressive and restless of the powers. And you know, there's a lot to be said. I mean, the the, the people who who made that case didn't make up their sources. They found lots of evidence of aggression and paranoia and imperialism in the German command and in the German political elite. But the problem is that we find very similar moods and very similar utterances and decisions uh, elsewhere in Europe as well, in St. Petersburg, in Paris, um, of course in Vienna. And, uh, and of course we mustn't write the Serbs, we mustn't write Belgrade out of the story. It's a very, very complex story and one that can't be res reduced to, um, to a sort of bad guy narrative. So I suppose with the Second World War, it's generally fair to say that a lot of the blame can be pinned on Nazi Germany, but you think in the First World War, it's not the same. We can't just say that this, the German blank check, which I know is brought out a lot, was the reason for war. It was much more complicated than that. I think nobody's ever going to be able to show that the Germans didn't start the Second World War. That's, that's, that is, uh, you know, not open to debate, I don't think. Um, I think the, the, the First World War is a completely different, has a completely different kind of causation. Um, very multipolar. This was a world that was, was uh, you know, a very complexly structured multipolar world. Of course, Europe was divided into two alliances, but the, there was a great deal of distrust and uncertainty within the alliances as well as between them. So uh, a very complex environment in which many players um, played a role. And, um, you know, it, it, you, you, you simply can't turn this into a story about how one bad apple state upset the card. And, and in the article that you wrote for us recently, you, you place a lot of emphasis on the actual death of Franz Ferdinand, which, which is often seen perhaps as just the final straw, but do you see it as more than that? Well, the, the incredible thing about the, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and his wife is, is, is how it's dismissed in, in, in much of the literature in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, and right, right down to, to the very re most recent past. This is sort of palmed off as a mere pretext for a military action by Austria against Serbia, as if nobody really cared that these two people had been killed. In fact, that, that, that claim has been made in many of the uh, general textbooks, that you know, the, the, the Archduke wasn't popular, so why did it matter that he'd been assassinated? Well, that involves a complete misunderstanding of the meaning of these two assassinations. They were freighted with symbolic charge. They were, um, they were carried out on a very important date in the, in the national calendar of the Serbian nation. Um, but of course it was also the, it happened to be, though the, the, the murderers didn't know this, happened to be the, the wedding anniversary of the, of the couple who were killed. And that's why she insisted on being in the car with him. Um, and 
the, the, the two murders sent a, a, a really deep shockwave through the Austrian elites. And I think the way we have to think of this is a, is a kind of 9-11 effect. This was a terrorist event charged with symbolic meaning, which, which had a transformative effect on politics. So the notion that this was just a pretext for actions which had been planned long in advance just falls absurdly short of the truth. And would the assassins themselves have envisaged the possibility of something like this then descending into war? What the assassins themselves thought is, is unclear. Some of them did say that they imagined that um, war was going to engulf Serbia, but they couldn't imagine Serbia's greater Serbian objectives ever being achieved in peace in any case. So a great war, the, it was the burning fire of a great war that would achieve um, Serbia's geopolitical ambition, which was to expand, to grow into a, a, a pan-Serbian state that would include within its borders all the Serbs and all the um, related nations of the of the South Slav peoples, the Croats, um, and also some non-Slavs like Albanians, for example, the Slovenes and various others, were to be you know absorbed into this greater Serbian entity. The the assassins of Franz Ferdinand and his wife were were Bosnian Serbs, and there's, there always seems to be quite a lot of dispute about the role of Serbia within that. Do you think Serbia was an active participant in this murder? Well, that's a very important question, and. Um, one has to answer with, with the with the old um, with the proverbial expression up to a point. Um, the, the 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 Serbian it would be wrong to say the Serbian state um, carried out a conspiracy to to murder these two. That 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 would be, would be a gross misrepresentation of the truth. Um, what one can say is that the Prime Minister Nikola Pašić um, had foreknowledge of the plot. He knew that something had been planned, that boys had crossed the border, boys had been trained in Belgrade and provided with guns and, and bombs, had crossed the border into Austria-Hungary and were, were going to carry out an action against Franz Ferdinand and his... I mean, I don't think he was aware that the, the, the wife, his wife, I think, was collateral damage, but certainly against the Archduke. And so he had foreknowledge. Uh, the, the actual planning was uh, overseen by a man known in the, in the literature as Apis. That was, how, that was his sort of code name and a sort of sobriquet that, uh, by which his friends knew him. A man called Dmitrievich, who was the head of Serbian military intelligence. So a senior state employee, someone very deep inside the Serbian state, um, was involved in this conspiracy and was masterminding it. But that's not the same as saying that the Serbian state masterminded the conspiracy. Uh, that large parts of the Serbian state were ignorant of what was going on. So it's a complex picture. You have some foreknowledge, you have some conspiratorial activity, and you have some non-involvement. Um, that's, that's the picture that presented itself to contemporaries. And it's important to remember that the Austrians never accused the Serbian state of managing and carrying out this conspiracy. They merely accused the state of having harboured the kind of um, underground networks that were behind the murders and having tolerated and even supported irredentist activity against the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. Could there almost be a parallel drawn there perhaps with more recent times with the Taliban in Afghanistan and um, Al-Qaeda, which I think was the NATO claim was that they, they were allowing them to operate there? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, as soon as I reread the, the Austrian, the note the Austrians distributed to the great powers explaining why they're issuing this ultimatum, in which they say, you know, you've tolerated, you've harboured and tolerated and even encouraged these irredentist activities against a, a, a neighbouring state. 
you know, the parallels to the Afghanistan crisis um, leap to mind. They can't help but do that. And, of course, the, the connections between, or the parallels between the Black Hand, this shadowy underground group of small cells, often unknown to each other, uh, with no paper trail, no, um, no, no membership lists, just small uh, cells of, of trainees who'd been groomed in, in shadowy networks, in, mainly in Belgrade, um, to participate in this kind of irredentist and terrorist activity. This, these underground networks, of course, they, they, today they, they make us think of Al-Qaeda. They, they can't help but do that. Um, so there's, there's a curious way in which our world is, despite the fact that 1914 is getting further and further away and will soon be 100 years ago, there's a, f a strange sense in which it's getting closer to us, or we're getting closer to it. Our world is getting more like the world of 1914. Um, you know, a world of, of underground, super sort of trans-territorial networks that are very hard to pin down, carrying out terrorist acts, often obliquely linked to sovereign states, but these links are very hard to prove, um, and characterized by a cult of sacrifice, death, um, and suicide, which um, which seemed very exotic when I first read about these things in the 1970s and 80s, but now seems a very familiar, um, a very familiar state of affairs. And, and after the the murder had happened, Austria-Hungary then laid a set of demands on Serbia, which which traditional wisdom seems to suggest that they were too onerous, they were unfair on Serbia. But, but from what you're saying, do you think perhaps that's not the case that that what had happened was such a severe? attack that actually Austria-Hungary were right to impose these conditions? Well, Sir Edward Grey, the, the then Foreign Secretary um, of Great Britain, commented famously, and this comment has been quoted throughout the literature, I've, I've never seen a more formidable note from one part to another. Um, what, what other notes he had in mind when he made the statement, we, we don't know, and he never made that clear. But certainly um, there, there was nothing gross or barbarous in the demands that the Austrians made. The, the, the most intolerable demand from the perspective of Belgrade was the demand that Austrian officials should participate in the closing down, um, in the judicial sort of rolling up and pursuit and prosecution of persons involved in the networks that had backed the assassinations. Uh, and Belgrade rejected that demand on the grounds that it was incompatible with, um, with Serbian sovereignty. So, you know, this wasn't exactly uh, a draconian uh, ultimatum. It was an ultimatum that the Serbs were always likely to reject, but that's not, the, that's not saying the same thing. And if we compare it with the Romboyer ultimatum submitted by NATO to Belgrade uh, during the Yugoslav Wars, um, well, there's no comparison. The Romboyer ultimatum demanded, for example, that Serbia open the entirety of its territory to NATO troops, that it allow overflights by NATO planes, that it allow targets, pra target practice in areas designated by NATO for that, those purposes. You know, in other words, that it prostrate itself totally before its enemy. Whereas um, the Austrian ultimatum was really very, very mild and very much focused on the need to secure Serbian compliance in a process of, of mopping up the background to these assassinations against a neighboring state. So, so that being the case, why do you think people have generally viewed the Austrian ultimatum as, as very harsh and almost inevitably leading to war? Well, I think these, you know, the, 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 one of the fascinating things about the debate over 1914 is that we find almost every argument that appears in the literature uh, in the mouths of the people who took part in the crisis itself. So, um, you know, right from the beginning, of course, the Entente powers quickly constructed a narrative, right? We didn't start this. Um, it's the Germans that, are that want war. They've always wanted war, and now they've got their chance. And Austria is just their willing tool, and this 
Franz Ferdinand business is just a pretext. They're using Sarajevo as a way of carrying out a plan they've had for a long, long time. They want a continental war. They want to settle German hegemony forever. And um, by gum, we're going to stop them. And so that, that was the narrative that established itself during the war. And of course, it, it was absolutely watertight within the uh, Entente powers while the war was being fought. And, you know, the simple fact is that large parts of this narrative have, have survived and stood the test, not, not that they've stood the, the, the test of empirical analysis, but they've certainly remained a powerful part of the way we remember this war as a war um, started by the, by the bad old Germans, the Huns in Berlin. Um, so it's partly about how long-lived the stories told during the war turned out to be. And it's partly the fact, of course, that um, the fact that the Germans then, uh, you know, a couple of decades later did start a horrific war and, and, and a, accompanied that war with a, you know, a, an extraordinary and barbarous war of extermination against Jews and Slavs. Um, that, of course, has, you know, placed a shadow over the, over the reputation of Germany, which made it very easy to assimilate the First World War to the Second and to think of these two wars really as part of the same conflict. Um, I think that's really a very serious misreading of the relationship between those two conflicts. So while on the one hand Austria and Germany are, are often blamed for starting the war because of their, their demands on Serbia, could the blame also be levelled on, say, Serbia and Russia? Who may, could they potentially have mollified Austria and avoided a conflict? Well, I think Serbia and... I mean, Serbia certainly could have, could have mollified Austria, um, if, for example, if the Serbian authorities had responded to the assassinations by saying, this is a horrifying event, um, here's a list of 50 people we've already arrested. We've, uh, they include the, the chief of military intelligence, whom we know to be involved in these activities. We've, we're going to shut him down and his entire network. Here's a list of 30 people we think are in Bosnian territory. Um, we're hoping that you'll be able to help us find them. That kind of behavior would have changed the mood of the relationship between Belgrade and Vienna, but um, the Serbian authorities were never going to behave that way. Um, the Russians certainly carry some of the responsibility for, for egging the Serbians on at every opportunity um, during the last few years before 1914 and continuing to do so during the crisis of the summer of 1914. Um, the French carry some responsibility for egging the Russians on, the Germans carry responsibility for egging the, the Austrians on, but you know in the end I think the blame game isn't really where it's at with this war, precisely because blame is so um, so widely distributed across so many, or that's to say responsibility is so widely distributed across so many actors, that in the end blaming is, is a distraction from what we really need to do, which is understand why it is that, that an entire continent committed suicide in 1914. And that's very interesting, the way you talk about so many of these great powers egging on their allies to go to war. Nowadays it's hard to imagine that happening when we know... The, the terrible casualties that happened with the war, was it just because they just couldn't predict how terrible this war would be? This is a really difficult and important question. Did they understand how bad it was going to be? I think that, um, you know, there are, there are glimpses of understanding, and one sees these in, everywhere across Europe, from London to, to St. Petersburg to, to, to Berlin and, and Vienna. Um, there, for example, the Austrian general staff does a sort of statistical analysis of, of, of how war will look in an era of, of stationary heavy machine guns and mass movements of infantry and concludes that the casualty lists will be so long that, that, they, that, that no newspaper will be able to print them. There are individual predictions, like the, the book by a, a, a social democratic school teacher called Lumsus in, in, in North Germany, in Hamburg, who writes a book called the, the Human Slaughterhouse, in which he describes the next war. And he describes it with an eerie exactitude what, 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 the, war, what the battlefield would look like. You know, mangled flesh, um, the smell of, of rotting humans everywhere. Um, 
churned up earth and broken limbs, this kind of thing. So, so there are moments when individuals seem to glimpse how bad this is going to be. But by and large, I think the real problem is that in the minds of the decision makers, the hope that the war will be short offsets or balances the fear that it will be long and catastrophic. And so the two things are kind of held in balance with each other. And I think there's a difference between 1914 and, and the years after 1945. If you think about how, how the world responded to, to the atom bombs at, at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, well, those mushroom clouds and those pictures of, of children with burnt flesh and so on, they, they entered the nightmares of ordinary citizens and everybody developed this sort of, you know, it became part of everybody's consciousness, what, what, what a nuclear war would be like, how horrific it would be. Um, that certainly was not part of the mindset in 1914, where I think people thought, well, it may be terrible, but we may just get away with it. And, and in many cases, for potentially political reasons, a lot of these leaders needed some kind of victory. I'm thinking particularly of Russia after the humiliation of the Russia-Japanese war, that for them, the, 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 what they could gain from victory was maybe worth the risk to them. Yes, I mean, <laughs> Europe is full of states that uh, you could look back on a long chain of defeats. Um, the Germans are an exception, of course. Their, their most recent major military um, adventure had been um, the, 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 the war against France in 1870, which had um, produced the new German Empire. And that's, that's something whose, whose sort of warm glow continues to, um, continues to illuminate the, the thinking of the military elite in, in 1914. But uh, in, in many of the other states, France, for example, of course, still traumatized by its defeat in 1870, um, Russia traumatized by 1904-5, the, the war against Japan, a war incidentally which the Russians themselves provoked, uh, and Austria with a, an extraordinarily distinguished sequence of defeats reaching right back into the early 19th century. Um, so, you know, uh, there are lots of states, I think, which feel that they have some catching up to do. And that, of course, is bad for everybody. And were there many people around Europe, many important people, urging caution at this point? There are voices urging caution, but I think the real story about 1914 is it's not about jingoism and people being keen for war, because I think, by and large, people weren't. It's, it's rare to find people who actually want war for war's sake. That's, that's pretty, pretty uncommon. What, what I think is more telling and more important in the context of 1914 is the fact that many people are prepared to accept a war as long as they can be persuaded or as long as they can persuade themselves that this war is defensive, that they are not starting the war. And that is something that all the, the belligerents in 1914 did very, very well. They, they very quickly put together narratives saying, yes, this war is coming, but we didn't start it. It's being forced on us by the opponent. The Germans said it's being forced on us by Russia. Look, they're mobilizing. The Russians said they're humiliating us in Serbia. It's being forced on us by Austria. Um, the French said it's being forced on us by the Germans and the Austrians. Um, they're doing this deliberately. And so everybody developed a narrative where war was coming from somewhere else. And the, the, the fact was that in, in the Europe of 1913-14, there was a very widespread readiness for war, not an enthusiasm for it, but a readiness to accept a patriotic war of defense. And might that be a reason why even almost 100 years later, no one's really 100% sure exactly, like we say, who started it? Because at the time, the narrative for each country was that they hadn't started it. Absolutely. I mean, one just has to keep, keep on coming back to the complexity of this crisis. I mean, complexity is a, a, a very important thing. It does, doesn't always occur, but this is, this is a, a situation in which complexity is part of the problem. Because there are so many stories you can tell about this crisis. And indeed, the contemporaries who took part in it um, developed 
most of these stories themselves um, before the historiography, historiography had even got started. So yes, this is a problem, that we have many, many accounts of what happened. They conflict with each other. They represent interested, selective, narrow, and biased positions. And our challenge as historians, trying to understand this in retrospect, is to, is to piece together the, the, what, what we see as the most plausible line of cause, lines of causality and look at how they interact and try and understand how this horrific event came about, although the event as such was not willed by any one of the actors um, who were its authors. As you've been saying, this is a tremendously complex build-up to war. A lot of people around, around Britain and around the world will be learning about the First World War at school. Is there a way that, that it can be taught to young schoolchildren in a way that will make it understandable to them without it being inaccurate? I think it can, it's an extremely accessible um, story for many different reasons, but, but among others, it's full of, ex of very, very interesting personalities, and you can use these personalities to illustrate all sorts of things. I mean, you have um, the fascinating figure of Sir Edward Grey, the, the British Foreign Secretary, um, a man who um, escaped from his office as often as he could to, to, to go out bird watching and fly fishing, and wrote a very distinguished book on fly fishing, in fact, a very elegant account of his experience as a fly fisherman with lots of advice on how to make flies and so on, uh, a book which is still selling today and being bought by fly fishermen. And um, he's, he also wrote books about birds uh, and so on. So this man who regarded politics really as an onerous burden and in many ways didn't handle the crisis of 1914 terribly, terribly well. Um, but a very fascinating, very interesting example of a particular kind of Whiggish Mandarin politics um, at the, in the early 20th century. Then you have Kaiser Wilhelm II, you know, the, the sort of boasting, bragging, bullying, but ultimately panic-prone and fearful emperor who was always, you know, talking, talking big, but actually tended to pull his horns in whenever uh, any kind of real conflict um, loomed on the horizon. And then many other fascinating figures, the Poincaré, the, the extremely patriotic, rather stiff and unyielding French um, Prime Minister who then became President and was President of France in 1914. Um, a, a panoply of fascinating Russian characters, from Sazonov, the, the Foreign Minister, the, the Foreign um, Gartvig, the fascinating Foreign, uh, the fascinating uh, Russian Ambassador in Belgrade, the Tsar himself, Nicholas II, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's a gallery of very, very interesting personalities. Um, and that aspect alone is, I think, very easy to, to bring across to students. If a student were to ask a teacher why the war happened, is there a way that it could be explained to someone, a younger person, or is it just too complicated for people to understand unless they've really sort of studied history for a long time? No, I think you can explain it. You can, uh, I mean, uh, of course, different, my, my colleagues would have different ways of doing this, but my, my own way would be to say that the, the, the key problem we need to understand in, in 1914 is how did a, a crisis which was regional in character become a continental crisis? And then how did that continental crisis become a war, a, a world war? So those are the two steps. And it's a, it, just a question of showing how the, the Balkans, which for much of the 19th century had been an area prone to conflict but and during the 18th century as well, but an area where which was so peripheral to, to Europe's central interest that it never produced the, the, the flashpoint for a broader conflagration. How did, the, how did a regional conflict in that relatively peripheral zone um, become the trigger for a, a continental war? That's the, that's the key question, and it's quite easy to explain how that came about. 
And finally, Chris, we, you've drawn quite a lot of parallels already with, with the present day events. What lessons can we learn from the 1914 crisis for the problems that we face nowadays? Well, of course, historians mostly are and certainly ought to be reluctant to draw direct lessons from the past. But I must say that the, the parallels between 1914 and now do give one pause for thought. And among these are the fact that, you know, till the late 1980s, that the world was governed by a kind of system that's sometimes called bipolar stability. You know, these two hyperpowers, nuclear armed, disciplining, if you like, the, the, the global system. That's no longer the case. And we're now in a world, we're just starting in a sense to understand what it means that we're in a world which is multipolar in character with uh, supposedly declining empires. There's a lot of talk of the declining reach of the United States, a lot of talk of the rise of China. So we have declining empires and rising powers, just as we did in 1914. We have numerous regional conflicts which seem to be getting worse rather than better. And um, I think there are many lessons from 1914, above all concerning vigilance over the, the mechanisms by which regional conflicts can start to, um, can start to affect supra-regional, broader relations between world powers. And that's something which is certainly not impossible uh, over the next decade or so, and a problem which has to be watched very closely. I think we can also ask ourselves whether we've got any better at accommodating new power, a new power on the world stage than we were in 1914, where, where the, the, the established club of powers had a lot of trouble uh, dealing with the emergence of Germany as a challenger, as a sort of new chum wanting to be admitted to the club. Um, have we got better at doing that? And how can we continue to improve our, um, our management of these moments when new powers arrive on the scene and have to be in some way or other absorbed, as difficult as that process is? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. That was Chris Clark. The Sleepwalkers is out now, published by Alan Lane. And that book has been selected by Professor Ian Kershaw as his Book of the Year for 2012. To find out his reasons for that, and what our other experts selected, check out our Christmas issue, which is available now. And if you've not yet read Chris's article for us on the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, you can find that in our November issue, which is still available as a back issue and on the iPad. You're listening to the History Extra podcast, brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. 
and we've also recently launched Google Play and Kindle Fire editions. These two are currently available in the UK, but they will be rolled out to other countries soon. And if you're lucky enough to have received an iPad for Christmas, then you might want to check out our new app, The Second World War Story. It's an interactive guide to the greatest conflict in human history, packed with expert analysis, stunning images and video footage. You can find it at the App Store now. In our Christmas issue, Claire Holleran describes a shopping trip in ancient Rome, revealing the sights and sounds of a retail experience 2,000 years ago. Claire paid a visit to our studio recently to tell us a bit more about her research and to reveal how the Romans pioneered the Christmas market. We're talking here today about shopping in ancient Rome and you've done a fair bit of research on that. Are you focusing on the entire period of ancient Rome or is it more narrow than that? Um, I focus mainly on what we will call the late Republic and the Principate, so the first century BC and the first two centuries AD, which is the time when Rome is at its largest and at its most populous. Um, And that's where the bulk of our evidence tends to um, concentrate. So that's why I look at that particular period. And when you say ancient Rome, do you mean Rome the city or do you mean the the wider empire? I focus particularly on the city of Rome because it is such a special case, because it's such a populous city. I mean, we think it's maybe as many as a million people, which for a pre-industrial city is... um, it's particularly noteworthy. It's probably London in around 1800. That's the next city in the Western world to get to that size. So that's why I focus particularly on Rome itself. So it's a city with almost modern dimensions, even mm-hmm. in the ancient times. Yeah, yeah, certainly in terms of its of its size. Yeah, yeah. And whereabouts in the city would we, we have found shops? Would they have been just dotted around everywhere? Would there be, say, a retail sector? Um. I think if it's everyday items, so if it's bread, um, that sort of thing, you would find bakeries throughout the city um, and you would find bars throughout the city um, and street traders and hawkers, I suspect, go throughout the city. But if it's something specific, so for example, if it's shoes or um, books, there seem to be areas that specialise in those particular trades. One of the problems with that is we rely... Sometimes on literary references, but also on um, toponyms, so on names of areas. And we don't know how current they are for our period. So, for example, in cities now, you might have a bread street or a milk street, but it's years, you know, it's centuries since they've sold bread or milk specifically. So looking at Rome, you know, we have areas that are associated with the shoe trades, but we don't know if in the period that I look at, they're still associated with the shoe trader if they've just got that name, that historical name associated with them. Um, but certainly I think we are looking at clusters of retailers. And I, I realise we may not have all the evidence for this, but what would a Roman shop or stall have looked like? Would it look any, in any way like a modern shop? Roman shops would... Um, look, if you think of... Um, I don't know if any of anybody's ever been to Pompeii, but you see these very small units that open directly out onto the street, like little kiosks almost. That's what most Roman shops would have looked like. Um, when it comes to stalls, we have um, pictorial representations and they tend to show wooden trestle tables, um, very often with fruit and vegetables put on them. Um, but if we look at reliefs or paintings from Pompeii as well, we see... Um, some stores that literally are just things put around the seller's feet. So they just use the floor. They might put down a mat, but otherwise they're just using the space there. Um, in, in one of our paintings from Pompeii, there's a shoe seller who's actually put out benches and he's put um, curtains up between columns in the Pompeian Forum to mark out his place of sale. 
So again, there's, I think there's a variety of forms that stores could take. And do we know whether most Roman shoppers would have sh- done their shopping in markets or would they have gone to shops? I think it very often depends what you were looking for. If you're buying food, most people would be shopping at markets. Um, for manufactured goods, a lot of those would be bought directly from the manufacturer in workshops that also double as shops. Um, it also depends on your social level as well. Um, so if you're a member of the elite, for example, you're the sort of you're the sort of person who would be buying um, expensive fish or meat, which is a relatively high status item, and you would go to um, the McKellen, which is a, a relatively specialised um, purpose-built market. If you were of um, a lower social status, you didn't have as much money, if you were buying foods, you would go to a market, but also to a bar, a neighbourhood bar. That's one of the best places to get hot, prepared food because you may not have your own kitchen facilities to produce your own food. Okay. So you'd go to the bar like people would go now to have like a pub lunch or something like yeah. that? Yeah, or um, you would have something there. to You could take things away from them as well. Um, so they would sell wine prepared foods that you could take away. And within Roman society, who, who would generally be doing the shopping? Would it be, say, like the traditional 20th century stereotype of the mother of the house doing the shopping? Would it be, say, the slaves or would it be the man of the house? I think it's, it's a real variety. Um, so if you are a member of the elite, very often you would send your slaves out to do the shopping for you. Um, men do seem to also be a part of the um, shopping environment. So they also go shopping. Many of our, most of our elite, well, all of our elite authors are male. Um, and they do mention in passing being engaged with the retail trade or um, shopping and so on. So we do have men um, going shopping, but also women, women as sellers and women as um, buyers as well. When would someone go shopping? Because I suppose people would have been working, doing other chores. Would would they have gone like nowadays like on Saturday? Would they all be busy going shopping or would it, would it be in the evenings? There isn't um, really much about that in our evidence, but shops, markets, those sorts of things um, would be open all day. I think from, I mean, the Roman day is dawn to dusk, so it varies, you know, in summer it's a lot longer, in winter it's a lot shorter. Um, but that seems to be that they would perhaps go after work or um, that sort of time. So you mentioned how a lot of manufacturers would have a shop that would sell their produce. Mm-hmm. When it came to things like food or maybe clothes, how, what kind of relation would the retailer have had with the producer? Mm-hmm. That's something that's um, difficult to know. That gap between um, producer, uh, the, the, the chain between producer and retailer is not particularly clear in our sources. We can speculate and I, I imagine that there's lots of credit relationships that are going on in Rome between producers and retailers. If a producer doesn't have the time or the inclination to retail their own products directly through their workshop, then they may employ somebody else to do it for them. They may have a slave that they employed to do it for them. Um, or they may come to some sort of arrangement with a retailer, either on a credit basis or selling the, the produce directly. Um, when it comes to food... That's coming in. Um, I mean, fresh fruit and vegetables has to come in from the hinterland of Rome. It can't. There's no refrigerated transport, so it can't come um, from too far away. Producers may well be selling things at the gates, and then um, retailers are taking it into the city from from there. That seems to be the easiest way for a producer to get rid of their stock.
So almost like a modern wholesaler, the retailers would go to a certain mm-hmm. area and get the stock and then mm-hmm. bring it in to sell to yeah. the public. Yeah. And one thing that I thought was really interesting about the article you wrote was the way you described the kind of sensory experiences of shopping, like the sounds and the smells and, and the sights and things like that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, what it would have been like to go to, say, a Roman market? I think one thing we can be certain of is that these were very noisy places. The street cries seem to be a commonplace part of the urban experience in Rome. We know this partly through our elite authors, um, poets and satirists, people like Marshall and Juvenal, they complain about being disturbed by the noise of traders in the city. Also people like Quintilian who wrote a book on oratory. He says that what we're aiming at is forceful oratory, not the rapid speech of a, of a street seller. So, so I think we, we are looking at people who are active sellers of their wares. And we can also see that in our pictorial representations. There we tend to see sellers with their arms raised as though they're addressing a crowd. Um, and very often they're shown touching their produce as well, as though they're inviting passers-by to, to do the same. So it would be, um, I think, a very noisy experience going to, to these markets. Something else that you mentioned in the article was some of the pitfalls that might might face a potential shopper, some of the tricks that some of the retailers would use. What kind of things did they need to be aware of? What we get in our sources, I mean, I mentioned in the article Galen's comment about serving human flesh. Um, Now, whether that's in any way true um, and where they would get this human flesh from, but it's it's interesting that he makes that that comment. Also, we do know that, again, as I mentioned, that retailers were putting things in in jars of water to make them appear bigger. Um, Also, we hear of people putting fresh produce at the top of a basket and you know, more rotten produce underneath. So you have to make sure that you see everything that you're, you're buying. Um, so, you know, rotten fish underneath fresh fish, um, rotten fruit underneath fresh fruit, that sort of thing. And who would be regulating the sellers? Would there be some kind of system to make sure that they did behave properly or that if a customer had a complaint, something was done about it? In, in the late Republic, we have magistrates called ediles who are in charge of markets. Um, at some point, that seems to have passed into the hands of the urban prefect in Rome itself. Um, it's not clear exactly at what point that happens, but there are magistrates who are dealing with this. And this time of year, a lot of people have been doing their Christmas shopping, probably, and probably heartily sick of it by now. Yeah. The Romans had their own equivalent, didn't they, the Saturnalia market. Could you give, tell us a little bit more about that, please? Um, these are put up in December. They're part, as you say, of the Saturnalia markets. They're known as the Sigillaria, after the um, the small clay figurines that were part of um, that, that were one of the gifts that were traditionally given as part of this Saturnalia celebrations. Um, we know from Juvenal that um, these markets were put up in the Porticus Agrippiana, which was built by the general Agrippa in 25 BC. And we know that because he says that in December, the paintings of the myths of Jason and the Argonauts are blocked off by these canvas stalls that are put up there. Um, And that's where you buy gifts for for people. It's not just the clay figurines. Marshall there is talking about big crystal vases and, and rings and so on that are being sold. So there's a variety of things for sale there. They're adding to the festive atmosphere like the way that Christmas yeah. markets do now. If somebody nowadays wanted to go to Rome and, and see a good, some good evidence of Roman retail, is there anywhere where you can still see evidence of this in the city? 
There's not actually so much left in the city of Rome itself because of Rome's history of continuous occupation that most things seem to have been rebuilt. There is something called the markets of Trajan, um, but there isn't really much evidence that these were actually markets. If anything, they seem to have been... They were excavated in the 30s and, and recreated as though they were an ancient market, reconstructed as though they were an ancient market. Um, but I think that's a building that has various different functions and isn't really necessarily to be seen as a market. Probably the best evidence if you're in the vicinity of Rome is to go to Ostia, which is the port city of Rome, which is about 20 miles from, from Rome, um, just out near the airport. And there you do have... Um, shops that you can look at and bakeries and bars and so on. So that's probably the best place if you want to see physical evidence of the kind of form that Roman retail would have taken. Would there be things in Pompeii as well that might be similar? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, very similar things in Pompeii. Um, They get different forms of bar counters in both places, but Ostia is a couple of centuries later generally than the evidence we see at Pompeii. So it may be a chronological change um, or it may be a geographical difference between what you see in Pompeii in southern Italy and what you see um, in, in Rome itself. But certainly, yeah, Pompeii has lots of evidence that for, for shopping and bars and bakeries again. And having done all this research on Roman shopping, do you think you'd rather be a shopper in ancient Rome or in the 21st century? I think certainly in the 21st century. I think you get an awful lot of choice in ancient Rome because it is the centre of an empire and because it is bringing in goods and produce from across that empire and beyond. So it's bringing in herbs and spices from India and so on. So um, if you're going to be anywhere in the Roman Empire shopping, Rome is probably the place to be because it is bringing in this produce from this huge Mediterranean-wide hinterland. But certainly for choice, I think the modern world would be superior. That was Claire Holleran of the University of Exeter. You can read her article in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, which is still on sale for a few more days. Also in the magazine, you'll discover the dark side of the Anglo-Saxons and find out how Napoleon spun his way to success. And that's about all for this episode. Why not tell us what you thought of it by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, Twitter at historyextra, or Facebook forward slash historyextra. Next week, we'll be looking at royal power in both the medieval and Tudor periods. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.